Hello, I'm Georgina Robinson. And I'm Tom Deason. Welcome to the Rugby World Cup Daily. Coming to you from Japan every day throughout the 2019 Rugby World Cup. The next stop is Hello and welcome rugby readers. Uh, my name is Tom Deason and I'm joined by Georgina Robinson on a slightly different uh, platform today to where we have been. Where are we, Jen? Uh, we're on a train between Shinjuku and Ginza stations. Uh, we've all just come from different parts of the city. There's an Australian media contingent team dinner scheduled for this evening, so we're all bound for a very famous restaurant called Andy's Shin Hinomoto, which is um, just one of the one of the venues to visit if you're a rugby fan this World Cup. I am not paid a commission for saying that. In fact, I had to just I, we've had to accept a 9 p.m. booking because we're plebs and we can't get in any earlier. Um, so we're going to have a crack at this podcast on a train. Yeah, train. That was initially the, the, uh, the pitch, I suppose, for this uh, podcast. But we will do our best and try and not be too loud, as you're not allowed to be super loud on these trains. But, look, we were separate today for a bit. I was doing a few other bits and pieces. You are at Wallabies, but I'm in the talking point today in Japan. Wow. We know the island, 1912. What were your initial thoughts? We were on a train. Well, we were trying to watch, so we just covered Australia and Wales captains runs at Tokyo Stadium, and the game was on. We watched. We watched Argentina uh, on the in the media room, and then the Japan game was on, and we thought we'll just sit here for the rest of the game. And all of a sudden, just before half time, they come in and say it's five p.m. We're closing. Drama. Um, drama. We we ended up just sort of standing our ground for the last thirty seconds just to see sort of the half end. Um, and then one of our colleagues, um, Beth Newman from Rugby Comma U, who's just papped us from the other side of the carriage. We will continue this podcast even if you take photos of us, Beth. Continue. Um, she came up with the VPN, so it meant we could watch KO and uh, tune into the game. And we were literally. We were the only uh, gaijin or foreigners on the carriage, but the Japanese around us were not engaged in any rugby, had no idea. We were hooting and hollering and looking, you know, like generally really obnoxious, horrendous foreigners. And um, we watched it all unfold and we had to then get out of the um, train and watch it, watch the final couple of minutes. Um, that, that cynical scrum time, the soaking up of the time by Japan. Um, from the platform, and it was just, it was an epic, an epic, um, epic result. But I think you can top my, where did you watch it story? Yeah, look, I'd filed, uh, and I was near my hotel, and I went and hung out with uh, your husband, who is an Irishman, uh, who was reasonably calm for the first 40. Uh, they went out toward a 12 3 lead, and then slowly but surely, Japan kicked a few goals, scored a try, were ahead by seven points going into the last little bit. And almost um, threw your uh, two-year-old out the window when Joey Carberry uh, decided to kick the ball out, trailing by seven points after the full-time siren. Look, I'm sure there'll be a lot of wash-up to that. Jamie Joseph made a really interesting comment after full-time. The Japan coach talking about how they had all of it, you know, subconsciously circled that game on the calendar for three years in Ireland. Maybe had looked at it on Monday. 
it's quite the quite the quote uh, heading forward as that pool A just is completely thrown wide open now with Japan two from two, Scotland none from one at this stage, and Ireland obviously one from two. Um, who will rue perhaps not picking a guy like Johnny Sexton in their starting team or even on the bench to use as absolute insurance when things were getting tight at the end. We then um, Wayne Smith from the Australian. And, and myself went went for a look uh, at some bars around Shinjuku Station to sort of have a beer and dissect the day. And we stumbled upon some um, English journos and Welsh journos covering the Wales team. And one of them, his assignment tonight was to come up with the top 10 Rugby World Cup upsets. So it was great. We then sat around dissecting which upsets were better. And we actually had a nice little discussion about whether Japan's um, the Brighton Miracle, the, the, the what, two or three point win over South Africa in 2015 was better than uh, this one and um, a couple of us disagreed because you know that was the first one so everyone said well you know they, they you can only do it once you can only do it for the first time once and, and I, my, my point was that that's true. That was an upset. That was close. This was a dominant performance, and for that reason, and this is an island routine that many still, despite having some wobbles over the last twelve months, many still did put in their top three contenders for this World Cup. To be beaten by Japan, regardless of what you can say about missing Johnny Sexton, I mean, to be beaten by Japan and dominated at set piece in the way that they were at the scrum, um, for me, topped topped the kind of shock and awe of. Of um, South Africa in 2015. What's your take on that? Yeah, well, you can tell that this was meticulous planning years in advance. Jamie Joseph, um, Tony you know, Brown have got that side absolutely humming when it matters most. I mean, South Africa have won the World Cup though before. Like, if you actually just, I know, if you break that down, that was quite incredible. Ireland haven't obviously made a World Cup final before, so is there that aura about them that the Springboks may have had? Look, that'll be debated in the days to come and it's just great that we can, you know, the second major upset of this tournament thus far and what are we, nine, eight days into the tournament um, with obviously Uruguay beating Fiji, the other one, but I mean, very similar for mine and, you know, the Japanese over here would, would have been loving that. It wasn't, you know, crazy scenes on the streets and obviously I was watching... Um, no, there were no scenes on the streets. There might have been in Shizuoka and it was probably um, the Irish. What is that you know, music? Th- <laughs> I love it. Bring it back to Sydney. It was probably the Irish throwing themselves um, prostrate on the streets or self-flagellating or something. I mean, I, it was just a, a stunning, stunning upset. And the thing about uh, South Africa, I've got to disagree with you, Tommy, they weren't a good team in 2015. I mean, they maybe had the legacy kind of top three or four, but they weren't a great team. And Ireland has had, you know, World Cup favourites tag the last couple of years. And for Joe Schmidt to uh, concede this one is, I think, just very interesting. And and I noted that um, they were like beetroots, not just the forwards, but like the 25-minute mark, they looked gassed and hot and sweaty. Jaco Piper looked gassed and hot and sweaty, but not quite as pink as... Uh, the Irish forwards. The um, it was also interesting. The World Rugby rankings have obviously just flipped in a heartbeat. You know, Ireland a few days ago were the world number one. They've gone back to fourth now, and Japan have leapfrogged Scotland into eighth. And that and why is that? That's because World Cup rankings are worth. Is it something yeah, like double, double the points? Double points. So obviously, um, they 
just get finalised after every match as opposed to every Monday after a usual test week when they played on Saturdays. So, look, uh, you're getting thrown around on the train. Hopefully this audio is okay for our listeners. We saw a few Wallabies jerseys floating around we just did. then, which is nice. Uh, it was really nice. We saw one of those horrendous uh, Wallabies uh, Hawaiian shirts with pineapples all over it, sported by a man, I, I dare say, he's in his 60s. Um, that was that's always a, a lovely thing to see. Um, the the English the English and Welsh journos were hitting us up today about how we felt about this game. I'm going to put it on you, Tommy. How do you feel about tomorrow? What do you think will happen? I think Wales will come out of the blocks hard early. We'll score a few early tries. Australia's bench um, will get them back close, but Wales will prevail by one point. I think that uh, they are not totally sold on the team that Czech has picked. I'm happy for um, to put my... I suppose Wales are favourites going into the game. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think they'll get up by a point. It's OK. We're geo-blocked. Uh, we're geo-blocked by the Australian betting sites, but the one odds we could find was a dollar eighty, a dollar eighty for Wales and a dollar eighty-five for Australia. So that one-point margin um, certainly sounds accurate. I do agree that the bench, you know, is could emerge potentially as Australia's secret weapon. And I, and what I will say about the Fiji game, we all judged it pretty harshly in the aftermath, didn't we? Because they really gave Australia a scare. But a, but what the Wallabies demonstrated that they haven't maybe in, in previous years is some grit and some some confidence that they can claw anything back. So I think they will definitely need that um, on Sunday at Tokyo Stadium. But I, but I agree with you. Um, I think that, you know, Australia's bench and having Kirtley Beale come on when the Welsh bodies are tired could be a really great uh, move for us. And Nick White, you know, Nick White always injects that energy. And so if he can kind of, if he can have the benefit of watching what's happening and come on and, and, and inject that energy and that those sort of sniping runs and the different options that he's now learned to take, I think we could be in for a real thriller of a sort of a final 20, 30 minutes. Um, yeah. Um, huge, huge, huge game without stating the obvious there. There was also a bit of an update on the Reese Hodge story, which has been... Tom, um, all over the Reese Hodge story. We'll touch on it really quickly. Um, obviously, Australia have confirmed, like you grinning, that they are not going to uh, appeal his three-week ban, so that will stand. Um, there was a bit of a statement released from Reese. Uh, yeah, it's worth noting what Hodgie said. You know, obviously apologised for what happened. Um, he had a bit of a he defended Rugby Australia, the coaching staff, and he said he wasn't ignorant, um, that he sort of did know the tackle, um, the high tackle decision-making framework. Um, There's a great line where he said, let me posit this. Um, one of the... <laughs> Been floating around on Twitter. Look, yeah, we like, posit lots of things. Far be it from us to tell Reese Hodge not to posit anything. No, and then he posted a thing on Instagram too, just apologising and saying he's still going to be helping the team out. And um, lastly, to the media and fans, please start focusing on all the positive stories of this Rugby World Cup. The players are giving it all for their country. The fans are packing out the stadiums, and the officials are making it all possible. So that is that's um, a really nice rugby diplomacy move. I'd say to Hodge that you know. Whatever your coach focuses on, buddy, is what we focus on. So if, if, if Australia hadn't spent the last five days talking about the incident and their outrage and their misgivings, then we wouldn't have been writing about it quite so much. So 
Well, we've just got to keep all of that in perspective. But I do, I do think that he's well within his rights to just kind of point out that the way the story was written up was pretty unfair, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere. It kind of became the report... I think people stopped reading the, you know, the original source and the report became, you know, that Australia, that Reese Lodge didn't know, didn't know the, the, the technical kind of um, tackling techniques and it wasn't that at all. The framework is all about how referees are supposed to assess different tackles. So I think Reese Hodge's uh, comprehension of tackling techniques is beyond reproach uh, and I think world rugby could could kind of take on take on the, the, the role of diplomat perhaps in a more professional way in the future. That'll be my final word on it. And my gosh, I mean, can we just get on to the footy, please? That's, we will. Is this our station, Ben? It is. Uh, are rugby listeners, we're going to have to go now. No, I think this is a good, a okay. good time Excellent. to sign off. Too easy. Um, I've also written a piece about the Welsh second row. Tom, you're such a self-promoter. <laughs> it was a cricket yarn. Uh, look, yeah, have a oh, read. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, not a bad one. So, Welsh second rower, Jake Ball, uh, who played a bit of cricket in WA. I'll leave it at that. You can read about it on Rugby Heaven as we go for a feed and a few beers before the match. Uh, join us after the game on Sunday for all the reaction and uh, enjoy. Sayonara. That's my life.